This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Monday, January 15th, 2024. On today's episode of the show, we're going to have a spoiler-filled conversation about the new Jason Statham action movie, The Beekeeper. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film staff writer Bill Bria. Hello, everyone. Just so you know, I am of beekeeping age. Excellent. Well, uh, Bill, I had you on the podcast a while back to do sort of a a conversation about Thanksgiving, and you presented an interview that you did with the director of that film, Eli Roth. And I thought it would be fun to have you back to talk about The Beekeeper, because I did an interview with the director of that movie, David Ayer. So that'll be in the back half of this episode. But you and I have seen this movie. I wrote the main review for it. You wrote the the extensive like spoiler review that's going to be up on Slash Film by the time people are listening to this. And uh, so I just thought it would be fun for us to talk a little bit about this film. So let's kick things off here. Uh, I guess, broadly speaking, Bill, was The Beekeeper a satisfying experience at the movies for you? Yeah, I think it was. I think ultimately you do, I or I do, uh, have to wait against the January of it all. Because as soon as you started to see the trailers and ads for this, uh, you know, coming January, the new Jason Statham movie directed by David Ayer about beekeepers, you know, your mind starts to go to, okay, this looks like typical January schlock. And it's not that it isn't. It's just that as far as those things go, I think it was a pretty ticked all the boxes experience. You know, it, it had the the action you would hope to get from that premise, but it also had a little bit of the wackiness and the sort of uh, straight-faced uh, camp of the premise, but also there was a surprising amount of social commentary in it that I found pretty, you know, uh, compelling for a January action movie. What yeah, I was going to ask, Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. I, I feel like it was mostly satisfying. Um, you know, this movie is a lot more like John Wick than I thought in terms of like the mythology that they're trying to introduce about this like top secret beekeeping organization. Um, but the, the thing that I guess the reason that I don't think it's quite as satisfying as John Wick is because the John Wick movies take place in you know, a version of, uh, of planet Earth on, on a version of planet Earth, I guess, but kind of in a like uh, siloed off sub society where, you know, there's the different continental hotels and stuff like that, but there isn't really a blending of the John Wick characters with like normal humans on the street. You know, it's, it seems like everyone in the John Wick universe 
kind of is operating on the, on a similar wavelength or like understands the same rules and things like that. And the beekeeper is trying to introduce this mythology, but it also is trying to mesh with more real world um, uh, topics, I guess, with like elder abuse and kind of like the uh, phishing scams and stuff that is actually like relatable that real human beings can understand and, and are actually suffering from in real life. And then also like the political component, which we can talk about a little bit later, um, which I just don't know if that meshing really makes as much sense as the as the filmmakers might think. But um, what did you think about like the mixture of tones here? Yeah, I think there is. And I think if, if people are getting tripped up, it's in the John Wick comparison to it all, because I do see the parallels between the two films and i definitely think that whatever you know uh greenlit boardroom conversation that the studio had about this movie i'm sure that john wick came up numerous times during that conversation and you know there's definite parallel in terms of if you look at the general structure of both movies that you have uh, a, a well you know a world-weary assassin or you know uh wet work guy you know uh in hiding uh, and then something tragic happens that spurs him into action, and then he fights his way through a corrupt system to the you know the tippy top of wherever that system goes. Um, it's just in Wick, obviously, as you were saying, you know that's a very uh, hyper stylized and very uh, intentionally. I won't even say I won't say comic book, but like it definitely graphic novely kind of idea of mm-hmm. here's a real world guy, and and you know people tend to forget that John Wick, the first film, starts in a very grounded real world, and then has a very deliberate descent into the underworld of whatever this world is that's beneath New York City that, you know, we don't know about us normal people. Um, And Beekeeper, like you say, doesn't really want to be that per se. It doesn't really pull the wool back, you know, and say, oh, actually, there's this whole other world that you don't know about, citizen. It's still trying to keep it on a level of, you know, even though this is a shady corporation kind of behind it all, it's still a shady corporation. We're all very familiar with those. Uh, That's a real world thing for sure. And you know, I think that obviously there might be a little bit of confusion and maybe even confusion on on Ayer and, and Kurt Wimmer, who's the screenwriter, their part, because both of them have in during their careers bounced around between very hyper stylized, you know, comic booky films. Of course, Ayer very famously Suicide Squad and, and even Bright. Um, but then, you know, he's also uh, the writer of, of course, uh, Training Day and even the first Fast and the Furious, which, again, we now know the Fast and the Furious franchise is being very stylized and goofy and campy and all that but that first film you know is essentially point break (laughs) with Mm -hmm. cars and it's it's actually far more grounded per se for a fast and furious film uh and so i think that ultimately it's easier to accept the beekeeper for me when you think of it as part of the tradition of you know charles bronson's body of work uh you know something that's coming from um and this isn't a bronson film but billy jack even something like first blood you know the first rambo film which you know, again, because Rambo became something else during the franchise, we think of Rambo as very larger than life. But that first film is very socially conscious and, and, and you know, has a lot to say about Vietnam veterans and so on. So I think that this movie is uncomfortably maybe a little in between, you know, the sort of hyper stylized world. We get a little bit of uh, a pop of color, you could say, with the assassin, uh, you know, the whole idea of the beekeepers, which. Mm-hmm. I think if there's a flaw to the, this movie, it's the fact that they don't actually lean on the quote unquote rules of what this, you know, organization is. Yeah. As far as I understand it, 
there's only one for <laughs> each, you know, there's only for one for each era or I don't know what their rules of, you know, <laughs> how do you, how did, uh, did, how did Adam Clay retire? You know, did he just say I'm, I'm turning in my two weeks or <laughs> did he have to go through a process? Like what happens there? And so I do think that yeah, maybe they're leaving some room for hopeful sequels or something, who knows? But I think if there's a, if there's a flaw here, it's the fact that they don't quite balance those two scales. But I do think that ultimately I feel what it wants to be is more akin to a Charles Bronson movie of, you know, there's an injustice here and David, sorry, Adam Clay is fighting this injustice more than it's not a revenge thriller per se as John Wick is, you know? Yeah. 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 I have a lot of questions about like the inner workings of the beekeeper organization and how all this stuff actually works. It's yeah. I'm surprised they kind of like left that much uh, sort of um, on the table and like unexplained there because uh, yeah, it was just like, you know, there can, there can only be one at a time. What happens when uh, Statham's character murders the existing beekeeper? Like, is the program, you know, defunct at that point? Or like, is there uh, another person? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, self-tape for beekeeping. <laughs> um, I, I found the action scenes to be like surprisingly brutal at, at times. I mean, it's certainly not like the most brutal thing that, mm. that I've ever seen. I don't want to like oversell it. But, mm. you know, in, in um, I guess in comparison to a lot of, uh, these types of action movies, um, you know, a lot of the stuff is just like hand-to-hand combat, you know, guys get knocked out, get kicked in the head, whatever, like maybe a body flips over, maybe there's some gunshots or whatever. But like this movie, it, it kind of seems like it um, it enjoys like lingering on the uh, the sort of brutality of, of some of these moments. Like there's that moment where the guy gets his fingers cut off. There's, um, uh, I'm trying to think, there's like a moment where a guy gets like a pipe shoved in his neck, which yeah. I thought was like a little yeah. extreme. Um, and, and, you know, again, I'm not like clutching pearls here. I'm just kind of like noting the differences between how this movie uh, operates, you know, versus like some of the other films that I, I guess I would consider its contemporaries. But um, did you like, what did you think about the way that Ayer handled the action here? Well, it, it's something where I think I was taken back even when uh, we get to the last act and uh, we have the character of Lazarus, who seems almost like he's coming out of... He, he, it feels like uh, Charlto Copley would have played him in a, <laughs> in a, yes. a Blomkamp movie. But like he gets shot through the face, if I remember correctly, and yeah. comes back for more. So it's something where it wants to be a little bit hyper-real. It wants to be obviously a little bit, you know, that stylization of, you know, we can get stabbed multiple times and still keep on trucking um and yet i because so a lot of people as we already talked about the john wick comparison i feel if there's a closer contemporary comparison of this movie to another action trilogy or you know a quadrilogy in john wick's case it's the equalizer films which antoine fuqua directed with denzel washington as a star and of course fuqua and, and Ayer have that relationship in the past with training day mm-hmm. so i wonder if if perhaps Ayer was looking after uh fuqua more than uh, David Leach or, or uh, Chad Stahelski when he was thinking yeah. of, of putting this together. Because you're right, they're very brutal fights. And I do think, even though Beekeeper is not per se a revenge thriller, in the insofar as like Felicia Rashad's character, you know, is 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 you know killed at the beginning and by her own hand. Uh, so it's more of a you know this injustice was done to this person who I had affection for. They had affection for me, but we're not exactly related and we're not close. But so it's a revenge of like, how dare this, you know, awful injustice happen to this person and other people, presumably around the world. Let me re, re, rebalance the scales of justice here. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think Ayer is using that 
uh, thematic, you know, uh, engine to justify the brutality here because it's not just, oh, these people are assassins or, you know, mafia members or whoever who are doing their business and they just crossed the wrong person the wrong day. It's they're, you know, exploiting the weak in society or the unfortunate in society. And, you know, isn't that much more not just relatable, but awful in the sense that, you know, because there's an implicit uh, sense, even in the John Wick world of like, once you're in this world, all bets are off. Like what happens to you happens. And like, you know, you kind of signed the contract unwillingly to be mm-hmm. part of the world of violence, you know, whereas nobody in the beekeeper who's victimized necessarily signed up for that. So yeah, I think true. There's, he, he I, definitely yeah. feels like these guys are like the scum of the earth, like the, the people who are doing <laughs> yes. the, uh, you know, the, the bilking or whatever. But um, OK, so. Uh, we don't have much time left, Bill, but I do want to open the Pandora's box of, of talking about like the political implications of what happens in this universe. Like, sure. okay, so, so Josh Hutcherson's character, mm-hmm. he plays this guy named Derek Danforth, who is the heir to this major American company who we discover late in the movie in like a, a big reveal that the film has that uh, his mother is the, the female, the first, I guess, first, maybe consider, maybe first, I don't know, yeah. a female president of the United States. So, uh, you know, the, the movie definitely plays that as a surprise. And then um, th- this absolutely ludicrous conclusion of the movie happens where it's, it builds to this big party at this mansion that happens sort of on the shore. And there's a collection of like secret service agents and like, a private military, you know, like mercenary group led by this character that you mentioned that is kind of like a Charlotte Copley kind of guy. Uh, and then there's just like a bunch of people there as if it's like a, a party for something. And I'm like, who are all these people? How did they get security clearance to be this close to the president of the United States? Um, and then, you know, the, the actual like uh, reveals start to come in terms of like J- Josh Hutcherson's character has been, uh, basically running these call centers that steal money from unsuspecting people. He's been funneling that money into his own mother's presidential campaign, apparently against, like, like without her signing off or knowing about it in any way. Um, you know, these are the kind of things, Bill, that that have me like, you know, I, I'm I'm on board for a certain amount of silliness in movies like this. But uh, when, when you take that sort of highly stylized thing and try to mash it into a, a real world scenario where you're like introducing concepts like, okay, this is the actual US president that we're talking about. It just makes me, it takes me out of the movie a little bit because I'm starting to think like, wait a second, are the, the journalists who live in this universe like so bad at their jobs that like nobody did any sort of deep dive into this woman and like how she became a presidential candidate and like where this money is coming from, you know, there, there are, there are questions that that stuff raises for me that I should not be thinking about in an action movie like this, but I am because the movie kind of like, I don't know, it, it didn't really, um, I don't know, maybe it didn't earn that, uh, that conclusion or it came so far at a left field or it's so ridiculous that I just like, I disconnected from the movie a little bit, but what did you think about how the film sort of built to this really um, (laughs) like bombastic climax with all of these different political implications there? Yeah. And I understand your reaction to that, especially because, you know, you, even in the movie you have, uh, you know, Felicia Rashad's daughter is a major character uh, and she's uh, agent Parker and, and played by Emmy Raver Lampman. And she, and the FBI are surprised to learn all of this as well. So it's not like <laughs> there's a shadow government that actually knew about all this and they've kept it secret from the public. It's that pretty much everybody was in the dark about what happened here, except for, you know, and even, of course, the president herself. So it's just, you know, Derek Danforth, you know, Hutcherson there, who's, you know, working behind the scenes doing this. 
And yes, there's definitely a disconnect, as we were saying, we've been saying about, you know, the, the tonality here of, you know, how stylized is it versus how grounded is it? I do think that ultimately the action genre at its core is a wish fulfillment genre, you know, whether it's a power fantasy or an empowered fantasy where, you know, you want either to be the person to right the wrong or you want to have someone out there to be the person writing that wrong. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is more of a there is someone out there who's supposed to whose job it is to balance the scales of justice in any way possible, you know, cut through all the red tape, no bureaucracy, you know, just going to st- go straight to the top and take care of business. And they do they justify that with their ridiculous B analogy of a queen slayer, which, you know, is present in order to make you the audience think oh god this is going to end with our hero killing the female president of the united states <laughs> for producing the wrong male offspring which i did research when i was researching my piece because i was like is that a real b thing it's a real b thing um <laughs> and so i think that ultimately the other twist of the movie being that jason statham or adam clay does not kill the female president because she was in the dark on it she wasn't necessarily perpetuating this evil scheme i feel like uh, he was ready to though if he was ready to it. he was ready to but you know there's there's a little bit of of mercy there so i guess that's if if he has an arc as a character it's that it's that he doesn't ultimately kill everyone involved uh as maybe he, he plans to originally and i think that ultimately it works as an allegory of you know if you feel as a person as a citizen of the world as a citizen of the united states disenfranchised or or unempowered to write these you know systemic wrongs that we're all dealing with still to this day and have been for decades and you know centuries then it's a fantasy of oh if only there was someone whose literal job it was who was trained for the purpose of doing this thing that i cannot do or no one i know can do you know so it's that i guess yeah i understand what you mean but i feel like it's a little bit more muddled than that because uh jeremy iron's character kind of explains the beekeeper organization as being this like outside of bureaucracy kind of like um this organization that doesn't really have to answer anybody but it's answer to anybody but it seems like their main function is to protect the system right and, Which and is the, why system... I feel like the, the movie goes out of a way to have adam clay not be a part of it anymore so like he was part of it originally and he was trained by them and he has all their knowledge but he's not working on their behalf anymore so it's a little bit muddled that way as you say too yeah i guess that's true like the, the fact that he's a former agent and not like the active current beekeeper is like right. the dividing line there yeah that, that makes sense um Okay. Well, I, again, I, I, <laughs> we're, we're running low on time. I don't want to like, you know, take up much more here, but uh, do you have any like favorite moments or, or anything that sticks out to you that you wanted to highlight here before we wrap it up? I think uh, as a fan of Statham's and, you know, I do think that the guy has range. I mean, anyone who's seen Spy uh, knows that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think he's got a real gift for arch comedy and, you know, the lines that he's asked to deliver in this movie, some of them, not all of them, but some of them, are so beautifully ridiculous and you know of course they had to work in a b pun in there so the to be or not to be exchange <laughs> i choose to be uh, i mean beautiful i i could just watch that on a loop so that's my favorite it, like, moment i don't really think it makes any sense in no it doesn't but <laughs> they knew they needed that moment and they wanted it there and you know they had to work in as many b puns as possible <laughs> so you know what ben i just couldn't believe it <laughs> Boo. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I that was the moment that really sticks out to me as well. And I, I actually can't believe that they're putting that in. Tra- I saw a, a trailer mm. on on TV, and I can't believe that they're they're sort of blowing that moment because, like, you know, they've had like they had the moment where he throws honey at the woman at the gas station and like sets her on fire, and the trailer actually makes that seem 
like the honey is the sole cause of her catching on fire yeah, or like it's a flammable it, who knew yeah and it's not really played like that in the movie that i think a character says something along the line you know he i think he says uh it's flammable who knew in the trailer but did that line actually happen in no, the movie it didn't, i don't it remember didn't, okay. it didn't make it to the movie so i don't i don't know what their choice was there yeah so I, you know that, that's just a little thing where i feel like they were kind of like playing to people like us like we would want to see that and then i guess a or you know probably decided okay uh th- there's a line i can't cross and on one <laughs> side of it is the line to be or not to be and i'm okay with that but the honey on fire the gas station thing i don't want to you know maybe that's a step too far or whatever but yeah uh, anyway th- 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 there's definitely some ridiculous stuff in here um I-, I just i feel like you know this whole thing could have like maybe come together a little bit better it could have been like slightly better thought out but like i still had fun with the movie so uh it sounds like you did too and i'm glad you enjoyed it yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that should this go forward with any more installments, you know, there's definitely room for improvement and room for embellishment. And, uh, you know, whether it I think it just goes comes down to whether they want to go crazier with it or try and make it grounded even more. Well, it's we'll yeah. to say. And definitely room for more B puns. Always. Oh, there's always room for B puns. <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks, Bill. Uh, let's take a break. And then we will come back and I'll present my interview with David Ayer. Okay, here is my chat with director David Ayer. Hey, David, how are you? I'm great, man. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for the time today. I appreciate it, and congratulations on the movie. Um, I believe this was your first time working with Jason Statham, and if I have the order of events correct, he was attached before you came on board to direct. So did you come into this thinking that you were going to need to adapt your style in order to make a quote-unquote Jason Statham movie? How, how did you think about that going in? It- you know, I got, I got this great script from Kurt, and it had everything you, you want as a director. It had, like, a great character, like, a story with twists. It actually goes somewhere and escalates and actually says something, and, and, and a great sort of sense of fun to it. And I haven't normally done, you know, this kind of genre movie before. And then with Jason, it's, like, classic movie star. Everything about him screams star, so... I just saw it as an opportunity to take what he's so good at and build a really supportive cast and a really supportive world around him and, and elevate his game and present Jason to the audience in, in, in a new way. Mm-hmm. There's kind of like some uh, inherent ridiculousness built into this premise, but it's, all, it's not like just a goofy movie. You're, you're actually dealing with some pretty real stuff here. So I was curious if that presented any challenges for you in terms of like nailing the tone of, you know, you're dealing with these real world events, but also this mythology and stuff that you mentioned, you know? Yeah, I mean, that, that was the biggest challenge and that was kind of the scariest thing for me and, and really where I was most uncertain in the process of like, okay, it's a genre picture, it's going to be fun, it's going to be a thrill ride, it's going to be this escapist piece, but there are these sort of emotional elements. And, and I really studied, you know, a lot of the classics, you know, Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, Beverly Hills Cop, 48 Hours, the, the movies that I grew up in and inspired me to become a filmmaker. And, like, what works? There, there's a grounded human quality that sort of pops in and out of them. And, and at the same time, there's this fantastic and fun action. So I, I knew it could be done. I just didn't know if I could do it. <laughs> so what kind of conversations did you have with Kurt Wimmer when you came on? Like, was there anything that you wanted to change about the screenplay before you started shooting? 
I mean, it, it's like anything. As as you get into production and start making the physical movie, you know, it's always like a bit of a movable feast. Um, but with with Kurt, it was a lot of like understanding beekeeping um, and understanding the lore and mythology of of the beekeeper and how it parallels to sort of the true mythology of the beekeeper and this idea of this almost caretaker of civilization. You know, with with no bees, there's no agriculture, there's no civilization, and and it's such a fantastic metaphor. And you know, talking to Kurt, the more I learned about it, it, it really is this ancient thing. And you can almost project this idea of this secret society shepherding humanity through history and keeping us safe. Mm -hmm. Did you look at something like John Wick at all? Because that's another, I guess, example of like a modern action movie that incorporates, uh, you know, brand new mythology to the audience in that way. Did you did you look at like how that movie does things right or wrong? Yeah, I mean, I looked I looked at the the first one, and you know, I, I love Keanu to death, and I'm a great fan, and I wanted to see how they dealt with that character and how they built a mythology around that character, and so the idea of like world building and a more popular version of world building within, you know, an action movie is, it was, it was new for me. And I think you always have to look at what, what works and what's been successful. Yeah. Um, tell me about your approach to the violence in this movie, because some of these characters die in pretty gnarly ways. <laughs> so it, it's funny. Um, there's something that Jason has, and, and that is he's endlessly entertaining when he's punching people. And the worse the bad guy that he's taking out, the better. And, you know, I have found that if, if your villains are reprehensible, you can get away with doing a lot to them. And, and if you notice sort of the, the, the violence scales, you know, the worst things happen to the worst people. And then there's just some people that are kind of doing their job and, you know, they get knocked around, but they're not getting killed. So talk me through like the moment where one of these characters gets his fingers cut off. Like, is that something that was in the script or like how, how much of the, um, of the action beats and moments like that are sort of come up with on the day, in the moment, you know, on the set, seeing things and, and sort of like going on the fly, you know? You know, a lot, a lot of it's in the script and, you know, a gag like that, you have to take the actor and they make a mold of their hand and then you got to create this asset and we used, um, you know, earth magnets to hold the fingers on, you know. So I'm sitting there on set all day, finger on, finger off, finger on, finger off, you know, fiddling. Best fidget spinner ever. Um, so there's, there's a lot of prep that goes into this. And then, you know, this, this creative ways of Jason using objects in the environment to deliver justice is kind of almost thematic. You know, what's he going to use next? What's he going to do next? How can we uh, <laughs> kill someone in a way we haven't seen before? So it, it does become collaborative because everyone's just throwing ideas in the hat and, and the best idea wins. So what is your approach to visual effects in a movie like this? Because there's a, a grounded quality throughout the whole thing. And I assume you must have had a lot of conversations about that going in of like what you wanted the movie to, to look like and how those things could mesh together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've pretty much done mostly practical effects on set. And so I'm really familiar with like what, what you can do and, and the different ways to kind of cheat camera uh, in, in order to make it just feel more real. I always feel like practical effects are, are, are much more visceral than, than CG 
or if you're gonna use CG, start with a practical effects base and then enhance that. So I really kept the CG minimal on this. So everything you see pretty much happened in camera. What about the, the scene where the character gets tied to the vehicle and then driven off the off the bridge? Like how, how much of that is practical? How much of that is enhanced? Like what was that it, it's, like? It's definitely a combo role. Um, health and safety wasn't comfortable with uh, us doing it to the real actor. So at some point we did switch to a dummy. Um, but he was game. I mean, uh, the guy who played Garnett David is just a great actor. He's, he's this kid from Essex and he just transforms himself into the person we see in the movie and you know he definitely got knocked around a little bit um you know everything was done very safely and 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 he was game to do it and it's always about like how do you do the handoff between shots and everything and that's kind of the challenge as a director is to make it feel as seamless as possible yeah I'm glad you mentioned him because I wanted to talk to you about the actors for a minute like so Felicia Rashad, what was it like working with her, having that sort of like uh, gravitas that she brings, you know, in, in the beginning of, of this movie? I mean, she is a really amazing, deep human being and, and has just such a, a presence and such a warm presence. I mean, she was like America's mom, you know, for the longest time and just a great actor and, and, and really open. And it, it was like a royal visit, you know? It's like, like, you know, it was an honor to have her on set. And she adds this real human um, gravitas and truth to the movie that helps set up everything that Jason does. Yeah, absolutely. And then Jeremy Irons is another uh, face that, that brings that similar sort of gravitas to a role. Um, what was your experience like working with him on this? It's interesting because he's such a classic actor. He's such a strong actor. He has such a presence, you know, and he's almost this godlike figure on set, you know, with, with his, his, just his power and, and what he can do and his capability. And then to pair him with Josh Hutcherson, who's this, you know, maniacal, out of control, troubled addict who has no idea he's a bad guy or even doing anything wrong. And, and you can see it, <laughs> you can see it in, in, in Jeremy's performance of like, what am I even dealing with? How do I, you can see the gears turning as he's trying to figure out how to deal with this person. And so, so much of, of casting and working with, with actors is building up that rapport and that chemistry. So there feels like a truth and a lived in history that, that will come across on camera. And you mentioned Josh there, and this is kind of like an against type role for him, you know, stepping into a, a part like this. Um, what kind of conversations did you have with him about, you know, how, how far you wanted him to take things as this sort of villainous character? You know, it, it's, it starts, for me, it always starts like from a place of truth and reality. And, you know, we had a lot of discussions about, you know, what does it mean to be loved? What, how, do, how are we loved? How do we choose love? How do we find it? How is it denied us? Who, who do we have to be to feel love? And, and taking that as a base layer and then adding on a layer of addiction, adding on a layer of you know, problematic behavior, adding on a layer of never being told no because of the privilege and wealth that the characters experienced, you know, what does that trap, what does that cage do to somebody? You know? and, and so, it comes from a very human place, and then you add the fun and the hair and the green jacket and all that other stuff, and suddenly you end up with 
a very compelling, troubled, exciting, and different character. And for Josh, who is a great actor, I, I think it's fantastic that he got to step outside of the way people normally see him. That's like a surprisingly deep approach hearing you tell me, you know, that that's those are the kind of conversations that you guys were having. And I was curious if you think that your experience as a writer helps you to, you know, when you're directing a movie like this, to have those conversations with the actors about motivation and, and those sort of deeper things instead of just, you know, setting back and being like, yeah, I don't know, like, he's the bad guy. What do you what do you want from me? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it feels like there's a lot of directors that wouldn't have that conversation with with actors. So do you think your, your writing experience helps in that regard? Absolutely. Because, you know, as a writer, you're sort of inside character and you have it in your head and then you can really start breaking it down. Like what is writing? What is a character? What is the difference between a human being and then the portrayal of a human being on camera? And then I've always been fascinated with the acting process and studied and read everything and audited classes and talked to act acting coaches and, and really tried to understand what is an actor even doing? And then to be able to have that um, ability to understand their work, understand their internal process, and be able to have a dialogue in that space has, has just always enabled me to, to really elevate performance. And then tell me about working with Jason. I mean, he, he's been a, a, a staple of the action genre for almost as long as you have, really. Um, so I, I was just wondering, like, since you've been in the game for so long, if you're able to learn anything from a guy like that, or if you find yourself being the one who is more, you know, in the, in the sort of like mentor role of like, all right, I'm going to teach lessons here kind of thing. <laughs> oh, no, no. He, um, he schooled me. I mean, let's, let's be real. He's, he's an action icon. And he he's probably forgotten more about action than I, I know. And he really raised my game. He really helped me get under the hood of, of what is action, how does it work. And he has this encyclopedic knowledge of like literally every punch ever thrown on film. And, and so when you present him with choreography, no, nah, I did that in this movie, I saw that in this, I saw that in that. And then his sense of, of self and how he presents on camera is, is impeccable. And you have to support that and then build around that. So I honestly, after working with him, feel much more confident about directing action. Wow, okay, yeah, that's fascinating. I've never heard that he has that sort of encyclopedic knowledge before of, of those fights. So like the choreography must be, you know, you're talking about with the, um, with the hand gag earlier and yeah. like there having to be a lot of setup that goes into that. I know there's obviously a lot of choreography, a lot of setup that goes into the action beats. It's not like you just show up on the day and, and start throwing punches, but so like when he uh, is collaborating with you in that way, does that add some extra time to the process of, you know, you thinking, okay, we can use this choreography and him being like, eh, actually we should do it this other way. Like that, that must take some time. So how do you, how do you factor for something like that when you're trying, when you're on like presumably a pretty tight schedule? I, I think it's both. I think it's, you, you do your homework. Um, you know, you do your pre-vis, your stunt vis, you do your choreo, you shoot it, you cut it, you get ideas, and then you bring all that knowledge and experience to set. And no matter how much you plan, there's something about being on set where it's just different. You know, the camera's here, the lights are there, I gotta shoot this way, I gotta do this, I gotta connect to this shot. So 
it, it becomes a bit of a Rubik's Cube and a challenge. And then the great thing with Jason is he can come in, look at where your camera is, look at the light, understand the choreo, and go, no, you need to move the camera two feet to the left. Okay, throw the punch now. Oh, dang, that worked. Wow. So it, it, it's helpful in a way because he's kind of laser focused on getting it right. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I was wondering if you had a film that you were attached to direct at some point over the years that you kind of felt like was the one that got away. Uh, Scarface, for sure. Scarface. I wrote an absolutely amazing script. Um and, it, and it's like anything, you know, it's you, you want, I want to be respectful of the studio and I want to give them the movie they want. And, you know, they want to be respectful of me as a director and, and have me make the movie I want. And so it was, you know, it was, it was probably better to just kind of like part ways on that one, you know, incredibly amicably, amicably and, and painful. I still get asked about that script. You know, are you going to make it? Or are you going to make it? Um, it's it's kind of like this underground script in Hollywood now. Yeah. What was your take on, on that? Uh, I think because I grew up in South L.A. and I grew up during the crack days and, and I saw so much of the violence myself um, that some of that is kind of ingrained in, in the DNA of it, you know, and the difference between having that lived experience in the real world and cinema lore and history, there's, there's a delta, there, there, there's a gap. And I'm always about reducing the gap. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, I was wondering about the status of your Dirty Dozen remake. Is that still in the works at all? I mean, I think we're still kicking on the tires, the tires on that and trying to find like the right angle. You know, it's, it's always difficult to take such a, a beloved and iconic IP and then answer the question of why now and why is this worthy of redoing now? So it's, it's always, it's always a, a moving target. I know you have a somewhat complicated relationship with the Fast and Furious franchise, but I just wanted to thank you for your work that you did on that first movie because that was a big deal for me. And right those movies have meant a lot to me over the years. And I think a lot of the reason for that goes back to the changes that you made to the original script. So I just want to say thank you for that. <laughs> right on. Yeah, um, no, I'm, I'm proud of that one. You know, I just I just said it in, in the L.A. I knew, you know. And yeah. Found it. Yeah. Let, let the Let the culture speak for itself and you can't go wrong. For sure. Do you have a, a personal favorite moment from the beekeeper, whether it's, you know, a, a beat that you think works particularly well or just a moment that happened on set that that sort of enhanced your experience that was super memorable for you? What, what's your favorite moment from this movie? Um, I mean, th this is a little bit simplistic and, and forgive me, but, you know, blowing up the gas station was fun because it's like practical explosives and there's a lot of gasoline and everything goes kaboom and, you know, you can feel the thump of the concussion in your chest. I mean, just, just on a straight visceral level. But it, it's always about working with actors. Um, you know, I don't want to give away spoilers, but there's a scene where um, – you know, Jason is interacting with someone who's been really bad and there may be a stapler involved. And the way that scene formed and played, it became very kind of real and emotional and, and, and kind of deep. And there's a true connection there. And when something unfolds like that and you find that sort of realism and truth in an unexpected place is, is always, for me, incredibly rewarding. 
the matter of factness with which that scene unfolds is the thing that sticks out to me the most about that. There's just like a casual aspect to it that is, uh, yeah, very memorable. So. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so I think I, I probably have time for one more question for you. Um, I, I think you're reteaming with Jason on a movie called, is it Levon's Trade? Levon's right? Trade, yes. And yeah. and uh, Stallone wrote that screenplay. So he you're did. talking about going back and, and, you know, looking at these movies to be inspired for making The Beekeeper. And Stallone, I mean, obviously must be a, a figure that looms large for you. So what is it like, you know, teaming up with now two action icons to make your, your next project? I mean, it's... It's... Working in Hollywood can be really difficult, and then these kind of like cool things happen, and these cool moments happen. So it is a bit of of you know I got to pinch myself: is this really happening? You know, because like like Rocky. I mean, I was a kid when I saw that. That that changed my life. And then to hear um, Sly's story about how he wrote that script and and had no money and and was you know typing with no heat in the apartment and and wouldn't sell it you know, and really stuck to his guns, you know, he inspired me to go on the, on a similar journey with training day and really stick to my guns and to kind of keep control over it. So, um, it, it's someone who's, who's been, you know, a bit of a lighthouse in my journey. And then to be able to work with them is, 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 is a real honor. All right. I hope you all enjoyed that. Thank you so much for listening. You can find more about the beekeeper at uh, slashfilm.com. And I will link to a few things in the show notes of this episode. Slashfilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That would really help us out a lot. Thanks so much for listening. Tell your friends about the show, and we will talk to you all tomorrow.